Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Suicide is one of the leading causes of death in the United States. And despite what some may believe, Muslims are not immune to it. This means that it is necessary for us to understand how best to respond to it. What is Islam's position on suicide and those who passed away from it? How should we as a community respond when we lose someone in this way? And what can we do as individuals to support and protect ourselves and others? Talking openly about suicide in our community is important. But we also recognize that listening to this episode may bring about some tough emotions. If so, please talk to a trusted family member, a friend, or a local support service about how you're feeling. Today on Double Take, I spoke with Dr. Farah Islam openly about this topic of suicide. Dr. Farah is a mental health advocate, educator, and researcher. She's taught courses in Muslim mental health at the University of Toronto, the Islamic Online University, and the Islamic Institute of Toronto. She currently serves on the expert advisory committee for the Muslim women's shelter, Nisa Homes. Dr. Farah is one of the heads of the data and psycho-spiritual department at Yaqeen Institute. Before we get into the episode, please don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please don't forget to share your feedback in the link in the show notes below. Enjoy the episode. Dr. Farah Islam, Assalamu Alaikum and welcome to Double Take. Wa Alaikum Assalam, Brother Muhammad. So happy to be here. Thank you so much. And um, your work is really, really pivotal for the Muslim community. And so Jazakallah Khair for everything that you're doing. Barakallahu fikum. No, that's, that's very kind. Um, uh, at the outset, do you mind uh, explaining for our audiences what your body of work has been over the last few years? What have you focused on? What's been kind of keeping you up at night? <laughs> Mashallah. So... Alhamdulillah, I've had sort of the privilege and the honor of being able to work within the Muslim community and really trying to, I guess, like the crux or the central part of what I do is a lot about dismantling mental health stigma. And so I got to teach a really great course at the University of Toronto. I'm in Canada. And so I got to teach this great course called Muslim Mental Health Research Policy and Practice. Um, it was just great to engage with the community, talk about these really important issues and what's really affecting our community. Alhamdulillah. And now I, I got to join Yaqeen, which is so exciting. Alhamdulillah. I've been working in the psycho-spiritual and data department, working on different papers and research, really trying to push um, Muslim mental health to the forefront. You know, what are those variables that affect Muslim mental health? What is impacting us as a community? How do we help people uh, get help that they need whenever they're facing those mental health struggles? Uh, Dr. Farah, um, if I've had a bachelor's in neuroscience and a master's in neuroscience, I would have thought about working for Neuralink or some, you know, radical technology company and, and going down that route. You decided to focus on Muslim mental health when you really could have done anything in the space at the forefront of technology. Why, why would you have given up that kind of trajectory to focus on Muslim mental health? That is a great question, Brother Muhammad. Honestly, I uh, kind of did a lot of soul searching and I found that when I was younger, a lot of what motivated me to take on different challenges or different projects or the work that I did was definitely motivated by this whole idea of do the most difficult thing you can imagine, take on the most difficult challenge and excel at it. 
And that was kind of my primary motivation. And that that's what I did. And in my so you're saying though, Muslim, <laughs> so you're saying Muslim mental health is more complicated than than working for a Neuralink. Okay, point taken. <laughs> You no, no, I pivoted though when I found that that wasn't um, as fulfilling because I found that that was me just doing what I thought was difficult or a challenge and thinking that that was an achievement. But then I pivoted when I felt that that wasn't helping the community or wasn't being implemented, that work was just staying in academia and not being actually useful in the community. Um, and just a personal story, of course, you know, mental illness runs in my family. And so you know, just growing up and seeing what my family members were going through and just sort of the the shame or the community reprisal that they faced every day for just having a mental illness, for having an illness that they had no choice and no, you know, say in the matter. And they were just trying to survive and face every day of their lives. For me, you know, it was like watching someone suffering and seeing people just kick people in the face. And I just found that unconscionable. And so I just wanted to do whatever I could to be part of, you know, sustainable solutions to change that um, in any way, any small way that I could contribute to that. MashaAllah. Zakallah khair. You know, um, our topic today is suicide and uh, it is a taboo topic. It's something that certainly I didn't grow up learning from Islamic sources um, and uh and, and it's a very, very sensitive topic. So I think before we get into the episode um, and the, the tough questions that come about when we talk about suicide and, and the Muslim community, do you mind uh, for the purpose of this episode defining uh, what suicide is and, uh, and then what Islam's position in general is about suicide? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so inshallah, for, for the purposes or the scope of our episode today, we're talking about suicide in the context of, of mental illness or someone facing mental health struggles. Um, and then the Islamic position of suicide, so, so the idea of someone taking their own life or dying by suicide um, is what we're going to be focusing on, inshallah. It's a really deep and complicated topic, but inshallah, we're going to try our best to, to do it justice um, in terms of the Islamic position on, on suicide. So there are many verses of the Quran, for example, that talk about the prohibition of taking life, of taking the life of others or the taking of your own life. Right? For example, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in Surah, Surah An-Nisa, you know, uh, do not kill yourselves, right? And also uh, Surah Al-Ma'idah, you know, it's as if if you take one person's life, it's as if you've killed all of humanity, for example. So there is a great prohibition on taking life. You know, there is great sanctity of life. We're looking at maqasid al-shari'a, you know, the principles of which our Islamic law is based on. One of them is this idea of preservation of life, right? SubhanAllah, it's, it's an important foundational aspect of our faith. But what I want to sort of, you know, present and what we kind of want to talk about on Double Take is this idea that, you know, suicide or different cases or special circumstances of suicide um, need to be looked at as well, that it isn't black and white. Um, and that's kind of what I wanted to present uh, in today's episode, inshallah. Um, Dr. Farah, uh, when we spoke earlier this week, you were speaking about uh, Maryam alayhi salam um, and... Uh, I guess, can we define it as suicidal thoughts, if, if I'm not mistaken? 
Yeah, so you know, there's this beautiful story of of, of Maryam Aniyasalam. She's in the you know the pangs of childbirth, extreme physical pain as well as the emotional pain, right? She's facing sort of this idea of the ignominy and shame that she's going to have to face her community with a child that's been born to her and she's not married. So she's going through all of this struggle and hardship and she cries out um, and she says, you know, ya mitu qabla hadha. you know, I wish I had died before this. You know, I wish I was forgotten. And it's such, you know, a uh, you know, powerful sort of verse and just shows her despair. And what I think is so beautiful that what we have to really look at here is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you know, what does he do? You know, does he rebuke her for having what you could say are, are suicidal thoughts or wishing for her death? What does he say? You know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he sends an angel to her. He sends angel Jibreel alayhi salam who gives her words of comfort, words of hope. You know, he says, la tahzani, do not grieve. And he shows her that there's a stream for her so she can, you know, drink from it, that there's a date palm, she can have, you know, fruit from it, you know. So he provides her with, you know, the, the, the blessings that Allah has surrounded her with and reminds her of, of, of not giving up, that all is not lost, that, you know, لا تحسني, do not grieve, and just shows her that he's here for her. So Dr. Farah, we want to get into the nuance in a few moments, but do you mind just explaining from where you stand why is Islam so hard on suicide? And and is it, I guess? And why is it impermissible? I know it's a very simple question, but I, I'd love to I'd love to understand once and for all. Yeah, absolutely. So the impermissibility of it or talking about it in most cases as it being sinful, again, is that idea of the preservation of life, right? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, this has given us the gift of life and we do our best through our struggles, through our hardships to worship him. Um, and that's sort of the purpose of our existence. And so, you know, the, the impermissibility of it, of course, is to take us away from harm. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would never want that type of death for us, right? Suicide is a very lonely and difficult death for anyone to have to face. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives us, you know, sort of parameters within uh, with to live our lives so that we don't have to get to that point. But again, um, this idea, the blanket statement that it's sinful in every single situation, we need to discuss that further because it's a little bit more complicated than that. Let, let us go deeper then um what is missing from the discourse in muslim communities when we talk about suicide um we talk about the impermissibility i think that's very very clear we um, pluck a few verses from the quran where it's clearly stated that we can't kill ourselves but what's missing in the discourse right so suicide as well as just mental illness or the state of of psychosis or losing our abilities to judge between right and wrong, good and bad, etc. There are gradations of it. And I think that's where it starts to get complicated. Um, so for example, there is a hadith where the Prophet وسلم, talks about how the pen is lifted off the record in three situations, right? Um, perhaps everybody knows this hadith, right? The first being someone who's sleeping until they wake up, a child until they grow up, and the third is of a person who is um, in a state of insanity until they regain their sanity or their consciousness. And, and so, when we say record, we're saying the record of your deeds, right? Of your deeds, yeah. exactly. Okay. So they're not held accountable for what they do in those states 
until they uh, come out of those states. Does that make sense? So, 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 so the three the three instances because like the like, first time I hear this hadith, frankly. So oh, one sure, of them sure. is a child <laughs> the as they yeah, okay yeah the sleeper. The All sleeper right, that's a good sign. The child until they reach the age of maturity. And the third being a person who's in the state of insanity until they regain consciousness or regain their sanity. And so a lot of fuqaha have, you know, uh, worked on this hadith and used it as the basis of many rulings. So, for example, Ibn Taymiyyah, uh, may Allah have mercy on him, talks about how. So that means that a person who is in a state of insanity should be then treated as a child. As in, so whatever their parents were, Right. Going back to the hadith, whatever their parents were, their mother and their father, if they were Muslim, then they will be resurrected and they will be counted among the Muslims on the day of judgment. So similar. And then Ibn Hazm, who was one of the great jurists of Al-Andalus, um, he was uh, born in the fourth century after Hijra. And he also worked on that. And so, quote, let me just quote this. So for as for the insane who have no mental faculties until they die, they are born as Hanifs or monotheists and they do not change their faith. So they die as believers and they will go to paradise. They will go to Jannah. So that means that if a person within a state of insanity takes their own life by suicide, right? They die by suicide. They will be counted as a Hanif, as a monotheist. They will be counted as what their mother and father's faith was. Um, and they are not accountable for what they do in that state. Because the thing is, you know, when you're in that state of severe psychosis, and we're going to use that as the most um, simple way to explain insanity, because junoon or insanity, madness, it's difficult, it's complicated, right? Again, there are gradations or levels of insanity versus insanity. Um, how, much, how much you have lost your um, ability to... Uh, discern reality, etc. Right. So, but let's let's look at severe psychosis. Um, in that in that state, you are not in the driver's seat anymore. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is so merciful. He is such a merciful Lord that He would never hold you to account for what you are not responsible for. Right. So subhanAllah. And I want to present this, you know, with that intention of, you know, a lot of the reasons a lot of the sources of doubt that a lot of Muslims often have or have to do with this, how people or vulnerable people may be treated or be perceived as being treated by the Muslim community, right? There's that great um, Pathways to Doubt. Yaqeen uh, put out a great article and Double Take is all about dismantling those sources of doubt, right? And so ostensibly from the outside, a person could, whoever, maybe you're working within those circles of mental illness, or maybe you have mental illness within your family, and you think, well, that doesn't make sense. This person isn't there. They're not in the driver's seat. They don't have that mental faculty. So then why, if they do die by suicide in that state, you know, why would they be held to account for that? And so I want to just present this sort of the beautiful nuance uh, and the complexity of our faith that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would never hold you to account for that which you cannot be held responsible for. You know, for me, when I read that, when I studied that, I found that mercy staggering. And so I wanted um, to share that with Subhanallah. You. Thank you so much. Um, would you say that that's kind of the majority of the pathways to, to suicide um, based on your research? Is that like the biggest chunk? No, it's not. So... Um, 
suicide is just so complicated. No, I, psychosis yeah. I'm is trying very to, rare. I'm trying to understand it. I'm very new to You're this. Right. So. You're right. You're right. Oh, no. It's a great question. There are so many different reasons why a person would commit suicide. It could be, you know, related to substance use. It could be they're experiencing difficulties within their home. Maybe they're facing a really difficult terminal illness and they don't want to deal with that suffering anymore. Um, so cases of like euthanasia or someone wanting to end their life. Um, and so, again, there are degrees of volition. But in particular, when we're talking about you know, severe psychosis, or cases of schizophrenia or uh, bipolar one disorder, where a person has full out psychosis. They are, are, they are, you know, experiencing hallucinations. They're hearing voices, seeing mm. things that are not there, um, experiencing really strong and extreme delusions that are telling them things like, you know, if you stand on those train tracks, you will achieve enlightenment or you will see God, you know, all kinds of things, right? So they are not um, able to reason. They're not able to discern between right and wrong. And so I, mm. I'm taking that as the most simplistic or the the best uh, sort of case of insanity uh, in these in these cases. But th- yeah, there are so many different reasons why a person. Yeah, no, fair could enough. And that. and I I understand where you're coming from. Like us on the sidelines. We're very, very quick to judge and we throw everyone who um, passes away from suicide into the same kind of bucket that they that they passed away from suicide. Um, but there is there are different pathways. I think um, one of the signs of the day of judgment is someone who is so overwhelmed by debt um, that he goes to the graveyard and, and wishes that he was in the place of the person that's in the grave. So there are different instances. And Maryam alayhi salam, as you mentioned before, that she was so overwhelmed, single mother, um, that she uh, she had those those thoughts. Um, so yes, there are different kind of pathways. Um, as a community, when someone passes from suicide, uh, there is confusion. You know, people, you hear certain parts of the community saying we, we're not supposed to pray on that person. Um, like do you say Allah like you don't know what to do so um, based on your research and based on your research of Islam's position on suicide and knowing all the nuances or, or much of the nuances around this topic what is the correct way for a community to respond that's a great question brother Muhammad and you really touched on that idea that you know from the outside when a person dies from suicide we have no idea what actually really happened we don't know the circumstances the reasons for it if they were really in a state of insanity or not right we don't know from the outside and so um just looking at sort of their body of evidence and and what Islam says um many many scholars and schools of thought say that we, they have the the person, a Muslim who dies in the state of suicide needs to be washed. It is a right upon us as, um, as the Muslim community to wash them uh, for their burial, to pray janazah over them and uh, to make dua for them as well. And so um, there are accounts where there was a person who had died from suicide uh, and the Prophet um, excused himself from, from praying the janazah, from leading the janazah for that particular person. And so the, the, uh, our scholars have taken that instance to say not that it means that um, that person is, is condemned or, or anything of that nature, but rather that because uh, the Prophet ﷺ was the leader of the community, um, 
he didn't want to take that position again to not uh, to not uh, to you know you don't want I guess in a way that the, I get to uphold sorry the impermissibility of taking your yeah, own life. Yeah, fair enough. Um, so it's a discouraged yeah. it's a discouraged suicide more exactly, than more than to condemn that. Uh, yeah, fair enough. Exactly. And so, I mean, and the thing is, it's such a controversial topic. Whenever we bring up suicide at a conference or anything, when we quote these hadith or uh, instances from the Quran, anytime you say something like that, someone will protest, someone, it will cause division, it will cause disunity. And one of, of course, one of the things that we try very hard within our faith is to discourage that type of disunity. And um, and so, again, it, it, it makes sense for not for the leader of the community to lead the janazah. But and uh, the scholars have said, you know, to just quietly excuse yourself. Um, it, nobody should know. Nobody should know that you're not leading the janazah just to ask someone else to lead it. Um, but for the rest of us who are not imams, who are not community leaders, we pray the janazah and we and we make dua for that person as well. Um, uh, again, uh, just from a, an account from the Sira, this is recorded in Sahih Muslim. There was uh, a man who had uh, performed the migration, so performed the Hijrah with the Prophet But when he came to Medina, you know, the climate, everything just didn't suit him. And so he became very, very sick, very ill, and he just couldn't take it anymore. So he actually died by suicide. And so one of his friends um, saw that his friend in a dream. And he asked him, you know, how, how are you? Um, how has your Lord treated you? And the man said that, you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala forgave me because I performed the hijrah with the Prophet sallallahu And then he noticed that his hands were actually covered. And he asked him about that. And he said that, um, but Allah, you know, did not restore my hands because he'd actually, you know, cut his hands to, to uh, take his own life. And so... When that uh, Sahaba then went to the Prophet وسلم, and relayed this dream that he'd had, the Prophet وسلم, you know, said just so beautifully, so beautifully. He, what do you think he did? He actually made du'a for that man. He said, "May Allah forgive his hands as well." And so, should we pray or make du'a for the person who has died by suicide? Yes. It's actually from the sunnah. It's from the example of our beloved Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. It's so beautiful. Dr. Farah, and, and I think the nuance is, is really, really crucial. Um, you spoke about psychosis um, and you spoke about that being uh, one path to suicide. There are other paths, like someone who is struggling with a chronic disease or really, you know, having a, a difficult time in this life because of their health. Let's say someone is facing suicidal thoughts and 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 that's kind of been a continuous theme in their life for whatever weeks years the fact that allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made it impermissible is this supposed to be a deterrent for them or is this going to actually tip them over the edge the fact that you know their solution to their problem is to to pass away from suicide and that even then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is, is saying to them it's a huge sin. It's a great question, Brother Muhammad. And you're right, it is so complex. And it's sort of that, that complexity to this discourse that we're trying to bring to the forefront here. Um, this idea of the impermissibility or the, the sanctioning against taking life. It's absolutely there. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants us to preserve and to, you know, to honor the life that he's given us. 
Um, but we bring up this idea of, you know, that there are different circumstances um, and Allah's profound mercy because, you know, the person who is in that deep struggle, maybe they are thinking about suicide. We, I hope, inshallah, that when they think of Allah's mercy, that will help to propel them to actually seek care, for them to not despair, to not lose hope in, in the, in the you know, the generosity and the mercy of Allah and Allah's forgiveness. And because the thing is, oftentimes we are propelled to do things that, you know, we deeply regret or you know, that we would never do when we feel outside of Allah's love, when we feel outside of people's love, our family's love, our own love. But, you know, on, on a very deep level, when we feel disconnected from the love of our Lord, and that's what I would never want anyone to feel in that place. So I bring up the complexity to show Allah's profound mercy. And I hope, inshallah, that propels us if we're ever in those struggles. May Allah, you know, protect us from that. But if we're ever facing those mental health struggles, we remember Allah's mercy and we seek help. And um, so you're saying that Allah's mercy is through this help that is around us, um, our friends and family and professionals. Much of your work has been about the barriers to that mental health care. Um, what are those barriers, especially in Muslim communities? Like what's stopping someone from gaining that care um, and from, you know, making that ultimate decision of taking their life? Yeah, excellent question. I often find that the barriers are of two folds or in two camps. So there are barriers at the level of the mental health system where we just don't have mental health care models that honor, um, you know, Muslim ways of life, Muslim conceptions of mental illness are, are sort of ideas of, of what mental health care can be and um, allow people to feel comfortable to seek mental health care. So that's part of it. So at the mental health system level, but then there are also um, barriers that exist at our community or individual level where mental health stigma, and all these sorts of different misconceptions, different ideas we have, you know, this idea, you know, Muslims don't have depression or you can't seek help for mental health or you can't seek help for mental health struggles. That's the qadr of Allah. You deal with it or that's Allah's punishment on you. That's weakness in your faith. You are, you know, possessed with a jinn. You know, we literally demonize people. Um for having an illness or facing struggle rather than helping them to seek care. We don't facilitate that pathway and that process for them. So the solutions have to kind of be twofold where the mental health system needs to develop models of mental health care that are actually, you know, that actually honor our ways of, of seeing the world, our worldviews, you know, bring spirituality, bring religiosity and faith into mental health care, because that's one of our greatest sources of strength, you know, as believers. And that's such an important part of our recovery. And then on the other hand, on the flip side, as a community, we, we have to work harder to have those difficult conversations and to, to not judge each other and to remember, again, the profound mercy of Allah. We don't know what, what a person is struggling with on the outside and uh, to continue to make dua for each other and to really be a united ummah on this front. And um, I feel, and correct me if I'm wrong, Dr. Farah, that there is a wave of um, Muslim professionals in this space and that this tide is turning, um, that people are becoming more aware um, of mental health issues and mental health care uh like you know a psychologist would have been 
um, just a few and far between in the Muslim community. But I feel like now, not only are there, you know, psychologists, psychotherapists, but there are also educational institutions that focus purely on the awareness of, of mental illness and mental care. So uh, have you seen in your research that the tide is turning? Alhamdulillah, I feel like we're at the most exciting time for Muslim mental health in terms of, you know, Khalil Center, you know, actual Muslim mental health center is opening up, you know, whether it's the U.S. or Canada or around the world. Um, yeah, Islamic psychotherapy. There are just so many avenues and so many opportunities right now that is is opening the doors. But again, we I think when it comes to the mental health stigma piece of it, there's more that we need to talk about within our masajid, within our homes, to, to really be able to facilitate those pathways to care, inshallah. So um, I guess to, to summarize and finalize this episode, I, I do want to um, double down on, on some of the practicalities um, that I can have in my life and my family can have in their life. What is our responsibility if someone has um, is struggling with mental health? How do we... I guess, support them? Um, how do we support ourselves? Like what are the, the key things that we need to do to make sure um, that that suicide isn't prevalent in, in our communities? I think a lot of it has to do with this idea of, of starting young. You know, there's this idea that we need to, as parents or as educators, we need to um, offer ways or spaces for our young people to grow up with a language or vocabulary for emotional health. You know, I don't know about you, Brother Muhammad, but I certainly didn't grow up that way, right? That wasn't role modeled for us. But if we grow up seeing examples of, you know, our parents, maybe they're uh, facing difficulties in their marriage and they, in a very transparent, in a very honest way, they recognize that rather than hiding it away and they seek help, they go to a marriage counselor and they model that for, particularly for their older children, for them to see that, um, that openness to seeking care, that speaks volumes and is extremely powerful. Um, a lot of it has to do with how we check in on each other. You know, if, if anyone of your loved ones, any one of your friends is maybe, you know, maybe they just gave birth or they're going through a difficult divorce, they were in an accident, whatever, or they lost their job. There are all these sorts of difficulties that are hardships that are just part and parcel part of our lives um, at those critical moments in particular we check in and we continue to check in in a really um, intentional way if this makes sense so it's not just hey I'm here for you if you need me just call me it's more like when you know one of your friends is in a difficult situation you go and do a grocery run for them you drop off food for them you say hey I'm gonna come over I'm gonna I'm coming over I'm taking I'm gonna take care of your kids why don't you go out or you take them to do things that will refuel them, recharge them, that you know, you know, their favorite hobbies, whatever it is. But you be, we be there for each other in a very intentional way. And we carve out sort of spaces for that intentional connection. Like, uh, for example, when I'm dropping my son off at school, you know, I purposefully park a little bit far away. So we have a little bit of a walk to school. And it's in those sorts of just those little interactions, that one minute, two minute walk together when he'll share something. He'll say, things, you know, mama, I was thinking about this. Or, you know, mama, I had this dream last night. And just having those intentional spaces for connection is so important. Um, in particular, for example, you know, um, shoulder to shoulder. I know that sounds funny. I'm talking about, you know, what we do in prayer. But 
oftentimes face-to-face communication can be really daunting and difficult for people to share. But when we're shoulder to shoulder, for example, like when you're driving someone or they're beside you or they're in the back seat, those kinds of conversations that don't feel so intimidating are really great spaces for people to open up and to be vulnerable. And I really say this for one of the best ways for the people around us, our loved ones, to be able to share their struggles and their pain is for us to be vulnerable with our struggles and our pain. You know, we share our stories and not to be afraid. And it requires bravery and it requires courage. You know, I was at a I was at a halaqa the other day and I kind of just mentioned in passing a struggle that I'd gone through um, within my family. And later when I was backing my car out, <laughs> out of the driveway, very badly, mind you, because it was dark. But then one of the sisters actually came out and she was in tears and she took my arm while I was trying to back out (laughs) probably wasn't even in park but anyway she told me that she was also facing a similar situation at that moment and because I had shared it she you know let go and she unburdened and so so much of being a part of our community you know taking care of our flock you know as our prophet you know instructed us to do is so much about being vulnerable and being courageous in what we share you know abu huraira who has a great story or a great account where he was facing you know extreme starvation and you know he tied a rock to his stomach and you know he was just waiting and hoping someone would come by and offer him some food and because he felt embarrassed to ask and we all feel embarrassed to ask uh, you know for for anything. And so he, he uh, uh, Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, Umar radiallahu anhu, they, they came by and he asked them, Abu Huraira asked them for some, um, you know, sort of for some instruction, some wisdom on a particular verse of the Quran. But then they walked away. They didn't realize Abu Huraira was in this state. But then when the Prophet sallallahu walked by, Abu Huraira didn't even have to open his mouth. He didn't even have to ask about that verse of the Quran. Our Prophet saw that in his face. He saw his hunger. He saw his hardship. And so, and he just invited him into his home, gave him some food. Our Prophet listened for the silence between the words. He listened for what was unsaid. That's what made him such a beautiful leader. And that is the extraordinary example we have to follow. And that's what we need to do as people to really be there for each other and to prevent you know cases of suicide to prevent those mental health struggles in the people that we love and we cherish every day of our lives so inshallah <laughs> no thank you thank you dr yeah. farah honestly that was actually inspiring and it's it's caused me to think about what more i can do for others um i do want to ask however how about if i'm on the receiving end um and no one's knocking on my door and no one is kind of reaching out and asking me how I am or dropping off the groceries. What if I feel alone? Like, what am I supposed to do in that instance in general? Excellent question. You're right. You know, ultimately, SubhanAllah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is always there for us. But will people always be for, there for us? That's not necessarily the case. And you're right. I want you to remind yourself always that you are not alone because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and his profound mercy is always there for you. You know, you take a step towards him, he will come running towards you. And if you don't have people within your circle, maybe you can't turn to your family. Maybe they are sources of stress and grief in your life, whatever it may be. 
I want you to know that there are places where you can seek help. There are call lines. You know, for example, we have the Nisa helpline, the Muslim women's helpline. You can call in, talk to someone, a peer counselor. Um, there is the Nasiha Muslim Youth Helpline, where again, you can, as a young person, can call in and talk to another young person who may be facing similar struggles and have that peer-to-peer -peer support. Um, and then there, there's, there are incredible services um, in, in terms of Islamic psychotherapy and great therapists to, to really go out there and to get help. You know, and, and I'll share this story as well, again, because we have to be vulnerable and be brave in sharing our stories. You know, I went through a very difficult period of grief uh it hit uh during the covid time just because of something that had happened and subhanallah i i could not i could not get out of it if this makes sense you know just tears and tears i think honestly the, all those tears you know even aged me when i look i look in the mirror now subhanallah you know that that period of grief was deep and intense and so i went i went to seek help from a, a, a wonderful muslim psychotherapist and the thing is, you know, that mental health recovery, when it's coupled with a spiritual journey, as it can be when you take uh, when you take Islamic psychotherapy, it just changes your life. I don't know how to explain that better, but, you know, you just you don't feel alone because there are resources that we do have available. And I know it's difficult and I know it's scary to, to try to go and to seek help. And you may have to go through different therapists or, or different avenues or resources until you find the best fit. Um, but alhamdulillah, it's out there. You know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, for example, sorry, there's a hadith where our Prophet وسلم, you know, reminds us that for every uh, illness, Allah has created a cure. So go and seek treatment. Go and seek treatment. Seek help if that's what you need to get yourself out of this difficulty, absolutely seek it. Dr. Farah, your work is uh, phenomenal. And thank you so much for lifting the burden on the community by, by focusing on this topic. Um, you're doing something that, um, you know, many people have struggled to do in the, in the past, and that is to, to really focus on Muslims' mental health. Um, I appreciate your, your time today, and um, we're not gonna let you get away that quick. Um, if you don't mind, um, and we're going to ask you some rapid fire questions and hopefully these are a source of inspiration and not stress in your life. Okay. Question number one, who is your favorite reciter of the Quran? I'm going to share my son's favorite reciter who is Sheikh Mushari Al-Afasi. He 100% believes he recites just like him and wants to one day, inshallah, grow up to be a Qari like him. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I love the confidence, mashallah. Oh, mashallah, excellent. Um, what's the last book that you were reading? Made by Stephanie Land, which was eye-opening about what happens in terms of poverty in America. So extremely interesting. In 20 seconds or less, what, what was she, um, <laughs> what's her kind of... What's the gist of the book? <laughs> she is a struggling single mother who has left an abusive family, has had to go through homelessness, etc. And she just talks about how she works as a maid and how that had just her struggle in having to lift herself out of poverty. It's inspirational, subhanAllah. Your dream breakfast, if I was to put anything on the table, what would it be? My husband's going to laugh at me. I'm going to say it's such a mom thing, but I'm going to say a quiet breakfast, a breakfast in silence. <laughs> I don't even care about the food. 
just has to be quiet. <laughs> Not running around. Something outside, maybe a picnic. I'm doing that. I'm happy. Awesome. And if you were to have um, dinner with one person who's passed away, who would it be? And it can't be the Prophet It would be Maryam just an inspirational, incredible, powerful woman. And I would love to know what her life was. And um, one positive memory from your work at Nisa Homes. So at Nisa Homes, we actually did a little maternal and child health kind of program where we were doing Quran story time, but through Zoom because it was COVID. And so I did that with my son and it was just so exciting to put on a show together. You know, we acted out um, different or I guess theatrical storytelling, if you will, of, of beautiful stories from the Quran. It's just a lovely special moment to share with him. And finally, uh, Dr. Farah, if there was one major misunderstanding about Muslim mental health or mental health in Muslim communities that you want to dispel and uh, that in your lifetime want want to make history? What would be that misunderstanding? Big question. Um, I think it would be along the lines of if you are facing mental mental health struggles or severe or difficult mental illness, I never, ever, ever want you to feel outside of Allah's love. Allah's mercy is profound that he would never he would never put you through a test that you could not go through that you didn't have resources to be able to to access and that it, it, that mental illness a person can you know be a hafid of the Quran can be praying five times a day more than that praying to hajjah it doesn't matter mental illness can impact or hit any of us and we can never judge someone from the outside, not knowing what their struggles are. You know, all of us, you know, fight an incredible struggle every single day of our lives. I would not suffer, I would not survive the hardships that you have faced, Brother Muhammad, or anybody who's watching this, and you would not survive mine. So let's be kind to each other. Let's appreciate or understand those incredible struggles that we all face and remember Allah's mercy uh, through it all. Dr. Farah, um, you're now part of the psycho-spiritual department at Yaqeen Institute. Honestly, very excited to see the, the the progress and the outcomes of your work. Thank you so much for your time today. Barakallahu <laughs> Wonderful conversation. Really appreciate it. Barakallahu <laughs>